Welcome to the BMJ's podcast on decolonizing health and medicine. I'm Jocelyn Clark, the journal's international editor, and I've come to the BMJ with a real passion and commitment to decolonial and equitable practices in publishing and editing. This podcast is part of a larger project at the BMJ to contribute to debates and progress towards decolonizing institutions and knowledge systems in health and medicine. We've been listening to and learning from experts and colleagues around the world, and they tell us that present inequities and lack of progress in health are linked to a failure to confront colonial pasts. We invite you to listen to these conversations with these experts, and we welcome your feedback. This is the fifth and final episode in our podcast series where we're navigating through the complexities of decolonizing health. And this time we're taking a long look in the mirror. I'm Navjoit Lada, clinical editor at the BMJ, and as this series unfolds, we're exploring how the ideas and structures first established in colonial eras have permeated medicine, science, global health, and our everyday clinical practice. The BMA, or the British Medical Association, is the trade union for doctors in the UK and was initially started in 1832, while the BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal, was established in 1840 as the association's publication, though has since become editorially independent of the association. You may have noticed that that timing means that the association and the journal were in operation during the height of the British Empire. And so inevitably, we have to ask ourselves, Has that left skeletons in our cupboards? And how has that colonial history shaped the organisations today? And what does that mean for being actively decolonial in our futures? We're going to turn to our panel to help us answer those questions. Lara, perhaps we could start with you. Um, Hi, I'm Lara. Um, I am a, uh, I was about to say medical student. I'm a foundation year one doctor, Um, newly started yesterday. um, And I'm- (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and I'm also co-chair, outgoing co-chair of the Medical Students Committee. And with regards to the question around decolonization, I think um, as a medical student and attending medical student conferences, it's really important. We've seen a lot of students come up with motions around um, decolonizing the medical curriculum and being act- actively involved in medical ed- medical education and ensuring that they are able to, um, that their curriculum re- represents the population that they, you know, that they treat. Great, thank you. And uh, Cameron. So hello, I'm Cameron Abbas, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. Um, actually, I'm impressed, Lara, that you started work yesterday and today you're on a podcast about decolonizing health and medicine. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> no, congratulations. Um, so I was born in, in Pakistan, so I, you know, I, I colonized country. So I was born there and um, I'm, I, I experienced I guess colonialism, and I experienced the the effects of colonial colonialism as I was growing up as an immigrant in the UK, um, and I'm very conscious of the fact now that in my job as editor in chief of the BMJ that I have a responsibility to uh, give voice to people who don't have the power. You know, and I I met and came across and lived among a lot of those people uh, as I was growing up, and I think this whole conversation is a conversation about power because ultimately. It's how it's how we con- you know s- some people control other people for their own benefit, and that's all around. That's about that's to do with power. 
Um, and so in in my position now, I think it's it's an absolute responsibility for me. If if somebody like me gets to this position and I do not stand up uh, for people who don't have power, who've suffered uh, through discrimination, through inequalities, through colonialism, um, then I'm not doing my job. Uh, and the BMJ is an international journal. Yeah, yes, you know we we care about all these issues in relation to the UK. Um, but also we're international first. And of course, that means that uh, we're attempting to support and improve uh, people's health and well-being and the planet's health and well-being everywhere. So that is something that we're aiming to do. That in, in itself might seem to be a colonial exercise coming from, uh, a, you know, originally in a British publication. But we can discuss that as we go but our job is to try and uh, do that and that's our that's our ambition um and i think we do that through helping and supporting uh, others around the world and working collaboratively um in particular though and people who know the bmj will know that we we cover things in many different ways you know we have journalism we have education we've got this podcast now and i'm responsible for everything that we publish and of course even the multimedia content um ultimately um but our, our you know at the heart of what we do is science and i think there's a big debate that's been ongoing is still ongoing and needs to be had about how we can decolonize science and research and really make sure that the benefits are delivered uh, to the people that need them. Yeah, thank you very much, Cameron. I think that that dual role is something that is quite interesting is how do we sort of be externally influencing while also making sure our, our own house is in, in order. Um, Latifa. My name's Latifa Patel. I'm an ST7 uh, paediatric respiratory junior doctor based in the northwest of England. Um, that is pertinent to, to this discussion, I'm sure. Uh, and I'm also a, a parent, a mum. I'm the first chief officer of the BMA in our almost 200 year history to be a minority ethnic woman. The first one to be a pregnant in the role and the first one to, to be a parent, a new parent in the role. Uh, and that certainly is pertinent because that tells you a little bit about our history. What work has been done already to understand the impact of colonial legacies in in the BMA and to understand how the BMA have benefited from colonialism? So so I think this can be said on the record, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever, like many institutions that have a history as, as long as the BMA, we will have, we have benefited from the, our colonial past, we absolutely have. Um, we can look through our archives, we can see evidence of that, we can see what previous members, what previous representative bodies did and how they functioned. Um, and, and, we, and I certainly feel it's really important to apologise, actually, not just to recognise, but to apologise and see that we're actually still benefiting from it. If we look across the BMA now, our elected structures, so we have over 190,000 members uh, and our membership is diverse, we know that. But if you look at our elected structures of 230-odd committees and 3,000 to 4,000-odd elected members, the diversity isn't there. And that, I have no doubt, is deep-rooted 
But in terms of what I understand from, um, from decolonizing medicine and health, we have two responsibilities. We, as the BMA, we have our internal responsibility in our electric structures, in our, in our staff structures, and looking at the impact we've had um, on, on our colonial history and how we can decolonize our trade union and our professional body. And then we look outwards. And in a similar regard to Cameron, we hold people to account. Medical Schools Council, the government, the GMC... Um, so I hope that sort of answers the question, but there's there's lots of elements to think about here. Yeah, yeah, and some some organisations have, um, you know, we've seen the Guardian publish on this, have sort of done a real deep dive into their own kind of the historical funding structures and founding structures that were in place, link links to slavery, that sort of thing. Is is there any work like that that's been done by the BMA? Off the top of my head, I I, I can't see our are obvious links to, to slavery um, being um, mentioned. But, but again, no doubt that there will be, there absolutely will be. I can say we've looked up, I personally looked through our archives and I've, uh, obviously it's an interest to me to see what previous representative bodies have said. Uh, and that's disappointing actually. Uh, and I'm happy to apologise for this, but previous representative bodies have had anti-IMG um, doctors, anti-refugee doctors policy. They're, they've actively made it more difficult for international medical graduates and refugee doctors to work in the UK and in other Western countries. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I mean, this is just one example. We will have hundreds, if not thousands of examples in our almost 200 year history. We can, we absolutely can go back and, and track it all uh, and it'll be a great piece of work um, and I hope it will it'll be it'll be beneficial to our membership to just help people understand because not everybody does understand but at the moment what I'm really keen to do is focus on the future and hear from members like Lara who, who I know does a lot of work in this area to say what can we do I, I know what I think we can do but what can we do to, to make it better what can we do to make it fairer and how do we focus on the future yeah, and that's definitely would park that because we're definitely coming back to that. Um, but before we do, Cameron, I just wanted to ask you about um, about the perspective from the BMJ. So the work that the BMJ has done to understand a colonial past and to kind of reckon with any colonial legacies. I know, I know they'll be quite linked with the BMA, presumably. Um, well, I think the answer to that is there's been little or no work done navjoy and that's why we're having this conversation that's why we're saying um you know we need to discuss these issues we need to i think the process for me is acknowledgement you have to acknowledge that this happened and part of that well, i'll talk about the slavery thing in a minute issue issue in a minute um and then the second one is to apologize which i think latif i think you know i think it's right to apologize for uh for the impacts uh of colonialism and the harm it's caused and continues to cause but the third one is to act i think that's the key thing you know what do we you know it's you can acknowledge still too many people still don't acknowledge it uh, don't apologize but it's easy enough to acknowledge and to apologize i mean that's that's easy the hard bits say what are we going to do now because the effects and the impacts of, of colonialism that haven't disappeared just by, by those acts, by saying those things, they haven't disappeared. They're with us today and the legacy, we saw it during COVID. You know, we see it through the inequities in the world that we, we live in today. So, um, and they're getting worse. And so we, we do need to act and we need to prioritize this. But if we go back to the acknowledgement part, I think we do have to acknowledge that 
Britain, UK, um, benefited from the slave trade, you know, and um, and 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 earn untold riches uh, from that. And you know, one particular argument around that is that it was only brought to an end because it realised that it could make more money through colonising India and other places than through the slave trade. Um, and so that was a spur to to colonialism. Um, and as a result of the wealth that was accumulated during those times, um, uh, that, that allowed and enabled the Industrial Revolution, which again increased the wealth of, of, of Britain um, and the empire. Um, it also brought with it inequalities as well, but it made, you know, increased wealth rapidly. And as a result of that wealth, it allowed uh, the establishment of institutions like the BMA and other institutions around the around the UK that are now having to confront their colonial legacy. And so um, I think, you know, directly or indirectly, I think, you know, every institution uh, has to accept that it has benefited uh, from that, from the history of of the slave trade, of colonialism. And that's why it's, it's, it's relevant to all of us. Uh, and of course, you know, the BMJ was first published in 1840. I mean, I look back myself, in fact, um, to see, you know, what was the purpose um, of the BMJ, why it was set up. And it was, it was really to kind of respond to provincial issues around the UK. That was the original kind of rationale uh, for its creation. But interestingly, what, why this is relevant is that The Lancet and Richard Horton, the editor, you know, is, you know, has readily admitted this, um, is that and he described The Lancet as, as being set up to be an instrument of imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, it was there to serve London doctors, but also to serve colonial doctors. And when you look at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which was set up, uh, which is a research institution in, in public and global health, um, just near to the BMA's offices. Um, one of and it, its primary purpose, I think, was to support um, colonialism. And so, I mean, some institutions obviously have a very direct relationship uh, with colonialism and the slave trade. Um, we might argue that the, the BMAs and the BMJs may be a little more indirect, but I mean, whatever the mechanism, it's there. And I think perhaps it's something for Latifa and I and others to take forward is that perhaps it's, it's our duty now to commission a piece of work that looks into that legacy. I know we don't want to always be looking back, but I think it's important to look back because that allows you to, um, you know, assess how you, you you address the future. And it's that old quote from George Orwell, which says he, he it is he in the quote, he, who controls the past, controls the present, controls the past, who controls the past, controls the future. So until we, we, we get control of what you know the past is and we assess it properly and we reevaluate it and we contextualize it in the way it needs to be contextualized, I think we'll, we won't you know, address the future in the way that we need to. So that's the historical side. So I think we haven't done, you know, we've done very little. I think that's an admission and I want to put that right. I mean, whatever happens, I think at some point, quite soon we want to commission a piece of work which you know perhaps we can do that with the bma which is to look at uh the bmj's uh you know the legacy of um colonialism and and how we benefited from it as an organization and face up to 
uh, our role in this. I mean, the Guardian's done something similar. The Lancet's doing something similar. Other other publications, I think, are, are tackling this. So we should, and all, as we know, in organisations are, institutions are. So we definitely should do that. Um, we've done a lot of work on racism. I think some of our readers and listeners may be aware of that. I mean, we've 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 uh, focused very sharply on the effects of racism in medicine and healthcare. And, um, we're very strong on equity and social justice. Um, we're very strong on on climate and on, on raising issues around the climate because obviously that's that has uh, an ongoing col col colonial feel to it. Um, and the way we do it at the BMJ is to bring evidence to this. You know, our values are to be evidence-based, patient-centered, open, transparent and courageous. And it's bringing evidence to the table. It's saying, well, yes, you know, we must advocate on all these fronts, but here's the evidence. Uh, that's supporting it. Looked at, and the and the final thing I'll mention, <laughs> sorry, the two more things to mention. One is that we've set up regional editorial boards to really give voice to particular regions, and so we've got one for Africa, for South Asia, for Asia Pacific, for Latin America, and for North America. And we've launched. We we now have a policy about historically offensive content, um, because. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, I haven't read every single article in the BMJ's archive dating back, back to 1840, but there will be content in there that will cause offence. I mean, when I read a, a novel from the 19th century, what well, might be one of the most famous novels um, in the world, you know, um, the, but the, you'll always be caught short by one or two passages which are overtly racist or, or imperialist or colonial. And you wouldn't write them now, but they're, they're there. And so the question is, how do you address, you know, those kinds of uh, uh, pieces and those kinds of articles in your archive? We have a policy around that, and I can talk about that if, if you'd like me to. Yes. Do you want to just talk about that, Cameron, now? Because um, I think it's in, I think it's interesting, and also the response to it has been interesting in that there hasn't been much response. So, <laughs> Actually, so perhaps you could just talk about what it what, what it is and, and whether you think it's been successful or yeah, how you might measure success. No, you're right. Until I think what so what have others done? I mean, the other journals have, have, have got a, a, a published statement saying that they uh, acknowledge, you know, the, the colonial... Um, legacy and that there may be historically offensive content in their archive they apologize for it but it's there it's there you know it's part of the scientific record we agree with that but we go one step further and we're saying in our policy that in fact if content is drawn to our attention or we come across content um that we believe is would now de is offensive um so it may include racist terminology uh for example that we will put a notice on that piece of content on that article or that research paper to say you know that this article may you know contains uh offensive content uh, and uh, as judged by the standards of today um but we aren't removing it from the archive it's there it's there for you to read it's there for you to analyze um but it, there's a, there's a notice there to acknowledge very explicitly the fact that we do recognise that there's something in there that we believe is um, offensive and of course potentially harmful. The the other thing that I added to the policy is that that's our policy for now. 
because as more evidence and more information comes to light as our understanding grows um we might decide that actually we need to be more proactive one of our one of our limitations of course is the ability to go back through the archive and search everything and, and go through the content and identify uh, offensive content systematically but perhaps artificial intelligence will allow us to do that in a much faster way uh, i don't know but if but if things change then we might change the policy in future so i didn't want to make, make that a hostage to fortune that this is it forever but the, one of our primary considerations of course is to preserve the scientific record so generally we need very very strong reasons to remove something or take something down yeah okay thanks cameron um well i just want to come to lara now um at this point you know as we're talking about understanding the colonial legacies of our organizations and then also trying to take action to facilitate that lara i know you've um got some experience there and, and have tried to kind of uh move the bma forward on that can you t tell us a little bit about uh, your views of of where the bma is and tell us about some of the work you've done as well yeah so i think latifa touched on quite a few things that you know the bma have been doing we've got the racial harassment charter which came from the medical students committee um we've got um and then forward to that we had the decolonizing the medical curriculum we've been working with the medical schools council and also look at developing our own guide with the medical academics committee there's a lot of work going on sort of in the background. Um, specifically, um, a motion was proposed at Medical Student Conference by Safia Khan, um, medical student from Oxford University. And she, it was focused on looking at cultural hesitancy, um, sorry, hesitancy towards uptake of the vaccine amongst um, ethnic minority groups um, and how that then led to the disproportionate impact of COVID on these um on these groups and then I then proposed at ARM and um, just to give some background part one of the motion focused on acknowledging the fact that um, there was a, an inherent mistrust of certain communities um, to the medical establishment because of um, things that have happened in the past it's not just because of a lack of um, education but it's because of how um, um, these groups have been not necessarily represented in in clinical trials that haven't necessarily been represented in clinical research and also have sometimes been harmed in clinical research. So part one was focusing on, on that part and then part three was focusing um, on the more practical aspect. So imploring NHS boards and trusts to then look at rebuilding um, trust with back with communities. Um, part two of the motion, which didn't pass, was looking at, was asking for the association to take accountability for the contribution of the medical establishment um, and the role that they played in mistrust um, and acknowledging the history of unethical healthcare research in the experience of black and brown populations um, in, the ex in the fact that they're underrepresented in clinical trials um, and their experience of discrimination in the NHS. And unfortunately that part fell. But I think going, going forward, the fact that part one and part three did pass was you know a significant um win for the association the fact that they're looking at ways that they support practical ways of tackling mistrust with ethnic minorities but it doesn't but it's still, still a shame that there isn't necessarily that accountability for um the the medical establishment in causing those harms perhaps this is a question for both you and then for latifa as well that um do you think where, where do you think members are with with these issues and I, i'm 
aware from what a lot of what you're saying is that students seem to be driving a lot of these changes um but but do you get what's your impression of the sort of entire body of membership um i can't really speak for other councils committees i mean i'm always going to advocate for the medical students and um, being the drivers of change and i'm forever proud of the way like medical students are so impassioned to speak about issues that are pertinent to them and how they're very um able to bring that passion and engagement to like to the ARM to big platforms and I think they've been drivers of change in the past and they will continue to be drivers of change in future ARMs. And Latifa perhaps you can um, speak to that as well like where do you think the the membership is on this is this something that kind of bubbles up as being important? I'm I'm very happy to talk on this Um, so so there's elements of what Cameron said that I want to respond to as well and there's elements of what Lara said that I want to respond to I'll start with Lara just because it's better for flow in in my mind and then I'll go back to Cameron if that's okay now to it so I mean ARM is is democratic we have representation across the UK and we hope as representative as it can be for 190,000 members and the thing we've done as the ARM team in the last few years and I hope Lara will agree as, as, as a member is trying to make it as more as, mo- as most accessible and inclusive as possible but these are difficult conversations and I mentioned at the start that I'm neutral in my RB chair um, role but obviously I'm also a person and, and I do have views I understand where the conversation went and where the debate went, which led to the, the falling of, of part two of the motion. But that was disappointing because on paper, it asks us to do exactly what m- myself and Cameron are talking about. Take accountability for the contribution of the UK medical establishment has played in creating this mistrust. And, 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 and a buzzword I don't think we've mentioned so far is honesty. That's what this requires, really honest conversations from all of us. Uh, Cameron talked about, uh, sorry, I'm flitting between both Laura and Cameron's questions, but Cameron talked about us doing a piece of work. Uh, and I'd like to have it on record on this podcast. I'm, I completely welcome that. We've done within the organisation a lot of work on racism and a lot of work on sexism. And I know uh, between the f- the four of us here, none of us will say racism in medicine doesn't exist and sexism in medicine doesn't exist. But sometimes you need to evidence it. You need to evidence on it so that you can bring every everyone with you. Because when it's there in black and white, it's so hard to deny. And, you know, anybody who's faced racism or, or sexism at work in the NHS, of which there will be lots of people, when you talk about it anecdotally, you do get colleagues that say, really? And then when it's written in paper, they go, oh, I understand now. And it's so hard as, uh, from a personal experience to say, you needed to see it on a pa- piece of paper, but yet when your colleague and your friend told you this, you didn't understand. But that, as a matter of fact, is just the way it is. Now, the discussion that happened, Lara is right, it, it was intertwined with COVID. So maybe the motion that comes back to ARM does need to be different and we need to have a more frank honest and open conversation and bring that evidence that Cameron's talking about to RB and and show our membership exactly what colonial foundation we rest on which we all rest on and the implications we see day in day out and maybe then it'll be really hard to deny. Yeah Um, I'm struck by something that um, you've both said actually which was about the diversity of the medical well Laura you mentioned the diversity of the medical student committee and um, Latifa, you've talked about trying to diversify um, some of the other committees as well. Is there something here about, you know, it takes 
people affected by these, directly affected by these issues. In a way, you could say we are all affected um, by these issues. But, you know, often it is people of colour who are having to champion these issues and kind of push for change. Um, and then, you know, Latifa, you apologised as well on behalf of the BMA um, earlier as well. And and that to me, you know, how how do you see this message? I think you've spoken a bit about it, you know, having to, you know, we need to show evidence to people, but it, it's sort of disappointing, I think, sometimes that often this work falls disproportionately on the shoulders of people of colour or, or, you know, in the case of gender women. Um, how do you, do you do you see that as being an issue and an important priority might be diversifying the committees further? Right now, the senior elected structures that we have within the organisation are the most diverse they've ever been. But I say that with the caveat that it's still not good enough. And I know, and I always talk about the fact that I'm an ethnic minority woman at the start, and I always talk about that from the first junior doctor in this role and the first one to be pregnant, because it makes a difference. When you go into an organisation and you don't see a reflection of yourself, I don't, I don't know about everyone else listening, but I certainly think this is not quite a place for me. And you find those conversations, those discussions you have, you constantly have to validate them and you constantly have to say there is a room for this in this room. There is a place for this in this room. That burden of making sure you further that work falls on you. You know, as a woman, so there's intersectional elements here as well. As a woman, I know any mistake I make will impact every senior elected woman after me. And people will say, well, when Latifa was chair, this happened. And she was a woman. Whereas I know, sorry, Cameron, but when, I'm not sorry, actually, but when a man makes a mistake, it doesn't sit on the shoulders of every man that sit, in, is in that position after them. And similarly, when you have those intersectional traits, when you have ethnic minority doctors who are in those positions, who, who fall, who slip, who might make a mistake, or even just don't perform to the standard of which the membership feel that they should do, that does stick with you. We have a, a, a much higher threshold, a much higher responsibility. But for now, and, and I mean this, for now, I am happy to hold that responsibility because that is where we are right now and that is what is needed. So if it takes people like myself and Lara to push that agenda forward, we will carry on pushing it so that in the future, you don't need someone of that ethnic minority or of that heritage or of that background or of that intersectional trait to do the work. It will just be a given. And what I can say about the BMA right now, the time we ask for support on equality issues, issues like this, the answer is always yes. What do we do next? So we are, we are much further than we've been previously. We still need to do a lot more work. So, so on, on your points then, Abjur, and I think, um, I mean, as Latifa says, unfortunately, the responsibility does end up falling upon people who are, you know, who are trying to put things right, um, be that women, be that somebody from an ethnic minority, um, be that somebody who's disabled, be that somebody from the LGBTQ plus community. Um, that should not be the case right um that isn't how it should be but unfortunately that is human nature you know it's a bit like you know people tend not to want to act on something i mean there are a lot of people who do you know so let's not let's not paint tar everybody with the same brush but unfortunately um you know there aren't enough people who are willing to say well actually i want to advocate and i want to support and i want to promote 
this particular group that's disadvantaged. And so the, the responsibility does disproportionately end up falling upon those very people who have suffered you know, throughout their careers and throughout their lives. Uh, but as I said right at the beginning, I think it's your, it, it is absolutely your duty and your responsibility not to put those people, you know, not to put your history and where you came from and the, and the, and the disproportionate power that you experience, not to forget all of that and to um and 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 not to advocate you know uh for the things that you you struggled against all your life i mean in terms of i mean i appreciate i mean the bma obviously it's a bit more difficult because you know it's elections you're voting it's you know it's, it's kind of it, it's a complicated process when it comes to getting that representation uh in the committees and in the uh, in, in you know in any groups that the, the BMA creates, I mean one advantage of course that we have in medical journals, and I think this is why, and in the world of science, is that you know the committees that we put together, a bit like our editorial boards, um, you know we choose those people. You know so uh, what we've done over the last um, you know eighteen months or so since I've been editor, it's not that we didn't have representation before, is that we've you know we've just taking that as an opportunity just to start from scratch again almost and say right let's get absolute make sure we've got uh gender uh you know, e equality on our boards and it's at least it's 50 50 percent on our editorial boards let's get representation from ethnic minorities let's get representation from different disadvantaged groups let's reflect as i said we're international let's reflect that representation from people around the world, we've set up editorial boards. I mean, one of the interesting things, actually, um, uh, and Agnes Binaguajo, who's the co-chair of our African board, and I had this conversation with her when I, we set up the, our African regional board, um, was a conversation about colonialism. And I said to her that, are we, by doing this, being colonial? And, uh, you tell me now whether us setting up this BMJ editor, because some people will say the fact that BMJ and the Lancet, you know, are setting up, in, you know, boards and uh, regional uh, offices, et cetera, et cetera, that is perpetuating colonialism. And I'm very conscious of that. But equally, I think, you know, I want to help people, you know, I want to change the world. Uh, and how do I do that? Um, and I can't just do that by confining myself to what's happening in London or, or in the UK. Um, and so I said to Agnes, I said, look, you know, you have to tell me now whether us by doing this, we're perpetuating colonialism. And uh, I'm sure Agnes can speak for herself. But I think the, 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 I think the response was that provided you do it in a way that's supportive, in a way that allows us to lead, address the challenges and the problems that we want to challenge uh, and address, then the th then it can work you know it, it's all about the power dynamic and of course you know i'm not going to be kept quiet i'm going to i'm going to share my views as you know very well now joy uh, every week in editorial meetings i am going to share my views and say well what about this and ask questions but ultimately it has to be the agenda has to be run and led by people from the region so that's why we have co-chairs um from each region it's their responsibility to take it forward so it's a very interesting and complex challenge to get that balance right, to say, well, how do we as an organisation, take the BMJ as an example, how do we improve the lives of people around the world by working with 
people around the world without perpetuating colonialism and reinforcing the old school power uh, power dynamics and i think i think it's possible there are things that there are controllables things like who you put on your editorial board i think every journal every publisher can put that right overnight so why don't they do it they should do it and so the things that we can we can control we should take action now on those and the harder things well we need to come up with a plan and work with others to put those right and it might take a long time to do it but it doesn't mean we don't tackle them yeah and I guess Cameron some of those harder things are things where there are tensions between um, you know, you, you mentioned it yourself, a lot of this is about a redistribution of power, uh, which is not easy to enact, particularly where there are, you know, all sorts of incentives at play. H- how do you think some of, you know, I'm thinking about some of what you're saying, which might be around, you know, allowing, um, you know, the, the we sort of, you know, we see this in what we publish that it is dominated by um, richer countries, you know, authors based in rich countries. And you hear authors from other countries saying that, you know, there is that kind of slightly or can be somewhat exploitative relationship there for those researchers. So for things like that, how do we encourage that kind of redistribution of power? You know, I know it's difficult, but do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, well, you know, well, obviously, you know, I do. But I think I think we should... Um... I think, as I say, it's things that we can control, you know, we should control them. So when it, we when we put together commissioning groups, our ambition with those is always to create diversity in the commissioning group. And when we put together author groups in our commissioning, it's to create diversity in the author groups to make sure that, that there is that representation. So we also, when we're appraising work, I think as a group, we need to be alert to these issues so unless you're talking about this kind of stuff on a regular basis and and, and you're you then you you don't then re- you don't then spot it when you when you see it in your day-to-day work so in the submissions that we receive clearly stuff that slips through that is perpetuating the power dynamic that you described the more we talk about it as an editorial group the more alert others would be. Now, you and I, Navjoy, obviously are alert to it because of our backgrounds. Uh, we look, we luckily, we have a very diverse team on the BMJ, but it could be much more diverse in terms of representation from uh, ethnic minorities and also in terms of regional representation. But nonetheless, you know, the more we talk about it, the more people will be able to pick up these points um, in in their day to day work. Um, I talked about the boards. I mean, one of the one of the reasons why we set up these boards is for them to tell us these are the issues you should be covering. We want to give them a platform, give them a voice. So that's kind of our our attempt to start to level the conversation by by making the voices of Africa and South Asia more powerful. I mean, my mandate to those boards is to say, look, you want to change your, you, you know, you want to change Africa, South Asia. It's complex, difficult. We're we're providing our convening power, our platform, and our reach. It's here at your disposal for you to for you to do that. So we can again act in that way. Uh, we can lead in terms of having policies a bit like our. Um, historically offensive content policy, but having those policies and driving that change amongst medical research and medical science. So there's a lot that we can do. I mean, some of it obviously will take a long time and, you know, you don't get a very good reaction to 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 wanting to change the status quo. Because people, I mean, it's, you know, who, who, who in power wants to give up power, right? If you've got the, if you've got the whip hand, you don't want to give it up, but it's our duty to try and change that. So I think there's a there's a lot we can do and I think we've only just we've only just started. 
let's come back to the BMA. Um, and Lara, I wanted to ask you, what what would you like to see happen next um, at the BMA? What do you think is sort of high on your agenda for change for the organisation? That's a really big question. I can go on for ages, but <laughs> I think some, some of it has been mentioned um, about sort of examining... Um, the impact of colonialism on like the BMA and sort of doing that sort of internal um, check of how we benefited from our colonial past. And I think practically what then um, looks like is then acting on that and looking at then how do we then serve those same communities who have previously been, you know, disenfranchised by colonialism. And I think some of that's already happening, you know, talking about the BMA, looking at racism in medicine, decolonizing the curriculum. How do we then enhance that work and make sure that, like you said, it's having the intended impact? Um, and then also, like we said, making sure that there's increased representation um, within the BMA and making it a place where, regardless of your background, um, regardless of um, your, your race, your gender, your sexuality, it's a place for you. Um, and I think when we then see that visibly in like the people that are in leadership, people that make up the committee, the people that come to ARM, the people that sign up um, to attend meetings um, and be involved in the BMA, then we'll see like the fact that, you know, things are changing um, and that we've addressed those issues. So I think that's sort of, I think starting with the sort of self-examination um, and then moving that to practically serving those specific communities is sort of the way forward. Um, and I think, once we've, once we've done that, we will see that in reflected in, in our membership and reflected in those that choose to actively engage um, and show up within the BMA. Great. Bold, bold vision there for the BMA, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, and Latifa, similar question to you. What do you think are the, the next steps um, for, for the BMA? Um, challenge accepted, Lara. I, I absolutely love hearing from you know those who I'm representing and 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 accountable to, like Lara. Um, no, Joe, I hope it's okay, but I also want to respond to some of the stuff that Cameron said before I come back and say what the vision for the BMA is. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. So Cameron mentioned the benefit he has of appointing and you know putting people in roles on 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 their boards. We have the brilliant benefit of having expert staff. So we've got an EDI corporate team, an EIC team, quality, diversity, inclusion, equality, inclusion, and culture who are absolutely phenomenal in the work they do. And a lot of the work that we've done, um, which myself and Lara have spoken about, they support us in that. And they are absolutely committed to improving the culture and accessibility within the BMA. I spoke and I said the ARM is now more accessible than it's ever been before. So this is the first year we actually collected equality data for those who spoke and those who put speaker slips in to um, participate in debate. And what that meant was I actively took proactive, proaction to ensure that those from minority groups were able to speak more or were able to give, be, be given that platform but to try and, you know, level up that playing field, which has always predominantly been middle-aged white men on those platforms making decisions. And Cameron spoke about right at the moment, uh, at the start, about power. What this is, this is about decisions being made about people without involving them. And we have tried in recent years, certainly under this leadership within the BMA, to absolutely not do that. Well, I can say I agree that racism won't disappear. It will be here for a long time, if not forever. But racism should be harder. 
right now in the structures we have, it is too easy to be racist. It is too easy to be sexist. It is too easy to discriminate and get away with it. And our role as, as leaders, I think, is to make it really difficult so that you can't actually just be overtly discriminatory and get away with it because we're going to stop you. We're going to call you out on it and we're going to put that protection around because that's what we need right now. We need protection around those, those pathways that allow it to happen to ensure that you can try to do it, but we will stop you. We will call you out and we will make sure that those in those minority groups are lifted so that if they can't stand up for themselves for whatever reason, we will stand up for them. I think coming back to Lara's vision for the BMA, that's absolutely right. We're going to look back in our past. We're already doing that. I only very recently in the Doctor magazine a couple of months ago, I apologised for, you know, for previously being sexist within the organisation, previously being racist within the organisation. I've only spoken in this podcast about the fact that previous policy has been anti-IMG, has been an anti-refugee. And you ask me why I'm why I apologise, well, I'm also the equality lead. And if it's not going to be this chief officer who's the equality lead, who is going to apologise? Is it just going to be someone else? Am I just going to look to the left and right and say, can someone else apologise? I'm happy for that to be me because I speak on behalf of the BMA. So I'm happy to apologise on behalf of them. Going forward, we will continue to push diversity and we will continue to break down the barriers that prevent our, our, our association and wider medicine from being as accessible to everyone as it needs to be because we are the voice. We are the voice of medical students and doctors. And if it's not us, who is it going to be? Thanks so much to our guests for joining us for this fascinating discussion. If you've enjoyed it too, and you haven't already heard the previous episodes in the series, do take a listen and you can hear our guests talking about everything from the impact of colonialism on health and medicine to the intersection of decolonisation with feminism and the way in which colonisation has affected research and academia. These episodes and a series of related articles and viewpoints on decolonisation are all available for free online. You can check them out at www.bmj.com forward slash decolonising health. And you can find a link to that in the show notes as well. Please do join the discussion as well. We would love to hear from you. You can get in touch by leaving a rapid response to one of the articles on our landing page. We hope you found this episode and the series thought-provoking and we hope it's helped in figuring out what decolonisation means for you. That was our goal for the series for us as well. Bye for now. <laughs>